Hi, everybody. This is the Ezra Institute's podcast for cultural reformation, and welcome to it. I'm privileged today to bring you not one, but two of our fellows uh, and dear friends. We've got uh, Jeff Ventrella and Andrew Sandlin talking about natural law theory, about natural theology, uh, and about the proper relationship between the revealed word of God in scripture and in creation. Jeff and Andrew get into some of the fallout that happens when we abandon the normative authority of Scripture and imagine that we can reason ourselves to God from nature. And the thing about that is we're sinners. Our hearts are deceitful and wicked, and without a transcendent authority, we read our own sinful desires and biases into everything around us. This, uh, this episode is part of a mini-series where we try to turn the spotlight back on ourselves inside the church uh, and inside the community of Reformed believers. We'll follow this up with a conversation on the phenomenon of Christians trying to make use of secular wisdom and thought systems. And for now, I hope you enjoy this. Jeff, um, could you just, uh, just sort of restate um, the, uh, the way that you had set up the, uh, the conversation just a minute ago? Um, in, in terms of sort of what's the, uh, what's the question, what do, what do you understand the question at issue to be today? What we're talking about really is uh, what is the source of normativity when we begin to do ethical thought? Uh, man is an ethical creature. He was created by a supreme judge called uh, God. And consequently, as we're in God's image, the question then naturally becomes, how is it then shall we live? We know whom we're supposed to worship. Uh, the question then is, how then shall we live? And so what we're dealing with is, what are the theories, and how do we use practical reason appropriating those theories to live? That's how you put it philosophically. But essentially what we're saying is, where is the North Star, and how can we know it, and how does it apply to the real world? And when, like, when you say that uh, that man is an ethical creature, I don't, I don't think anyone would uh, would dispute that we do, we cer- there's certainly an ethical component. Uh, but uh, but how how deep down, like, what is uh, is is ethics at uh, at the heart of the matter, or is there uh, is there something more uh, more baseline to what it means to be a human being? Well, in every decision that we make, in every choice that we make, in every act that we make we at least tell ourselves that we're pursuing what's good. The question is, is it right in that context to pursue that good by these chosen means? So in that sense, all that we do is ethical. And I would just take it one step more general and say this. As Paul says, whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever it is you do, do all to the glory of God. Hmm. Telling us that there is a fissure that occurs when we do things not to the glory of God. And as you know, Scripture says that we fall short of the glory of God by our sin, which tells us that we are ethical in all that we do. Right. Yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, yeah, so- something that uh, that we've been we've been noticing here so as an institute, uh, something that we've been noticing here just in uh, in the broader reformed landscape is this uh, this this push pu- push from um, from certain corners, certain voices, advocating for a uh, a, a doctrine of natural law or of uh, a natural theology, 
and uh, it's it seems like some of those some of those voices are getting louder, some of those impulses are getting stronger, are being uh, being taken up by by more people. Uh, can uh, could could we just comment a little bit about uh, explain where where this idea of natural law comes from? Um, give us some some definitions, some applications, and illustrations. Uh, you want me to jump in there, uh, Jeff, or what do you uh, what do you think? Yeah, well, Andrew, why don't you give give that, and then I will talk about it as it relates to kind of my calling in the area of jurisprudence. Oh, great idea. So. Um, I mean, if we, it's important to begin with the definition of terms. I mean, strictly speaking, natural law is to, I should say natural theology, is to frame an understanding of God without any recourse to uh, what's called special revelation. I don't like that language, but it means propositional revelation of the Bible or Jesus Christ. It means sort of looking at nature and deriving a, an accurate understanding of God and of theology. Uh, from uh, <clears throat> from nature, natural law is the ethical component of the broader uh, category of natural theology. Now, what a lot of people don't know is because these are almost exclusively discussed today and have been for several hundred years in ecclesial and theological circles. They actually began in ancient paganism. Um, the ancient Greeks were very frightened by the the chaos that they saw in the world, all sorts of wars and bloodshed and disease, destruction, death, and so on. Mm -hmm. And so they posited, many of them, a, a sort of a logos epistemology, so that uh, meaning is found in, in a sort of a coherent uh, revelation that is in man's mind and heart. Of course, they didn't believe in the Bible. I mean, the Hebrews did, but almost nobody else did. And they didn't believe in Jesus Christ. Most of this was pre-Christ anyway. Uh, so <clears throat> that's where the idea of natural law and natural theology come from. Um, some of the early Christian fathers were quick to pick up on this because their view is that God created all things, mm -hmm. and therefore because of that we can see reflections of him in nature and we can frame a law on the basis of it. <clears throat> that's, there's a partial element of truth. The Bible does teach natural revelation. Uh, God yes. revealed himself inescapably. In creation, Paul's very clear about that in Romans 1, and the book of Psalms is clear also. But I think the important point to make is that the Bible never invites us to frame a theology or a view of law specifically excluding the Bible and Jesus Christ. I think that's very important to understand. If Paul didn't do it, Jesus didn't do it, no prophet of the Old Testament did it, or could have done it, by the way. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, another thing important to recognize about natural law is the natural law theory, and of course, generally in the West, when we think about it uh, theologically, we think of Thomas Aquinas and his reliance on uh, Aristotle. Uh, it began within a society that already was largely committed to Christian presuppositions, and so it's yes. easy to come up with it's easy to come up with views of God when looking at nature when what constitutes nature in your own mind and heart is something shaped by Christianity, you see. Sure. Uh, but if you actually had to begin from zero, which nobody can, uh, if you had to begin as a, uh, from a blank slate, and again, that's an impossibility, no one would come up with this. Um, another problem with natural law is it tends to give uh, way too much uh, <clears throat> authority to and, and um, moral credibility to uh, the, the natural man, the unbelievers, though everybody sort of has these basic assumptions about life and <clears throat> basic assumptions about God, 
sin, and so on. But the Bible actually doesn't teach that. It teaches the sinners are quite blind. Not that they can't know anything, but that it's always skewed away from God. Uh, now, having said that, and I've talked for a while, so I'll shut up in a minute and let uh, my colleague Jeff talk. I think this latest revival of natural law and natural theology among Reformed people, it's certainly understandable among our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters. It's a big part of their heritage. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Not so much. Not so much among the Protestants, though it was there somewhat historically. Uh, but I think there's a strong, uh, to be quite honest with you, a strong reaction against the theology, apologetics, and epistemology of Abraham Kuyper, Herman Dewey, particularly Cornelius Van Til, even people like Francis Schaeffer, uh, and others who have strongly stressed the authority of the Word of God in life and in society. Even Dewey, who had a very high view of natural revelation, believed, and he's quite right about this, that Jesus Christ is himself mediator of creation. So to understand creation rightly, you can't just push the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, off and say, well, he doesn't really matter. Let's see with our own unaided reason what could, what we can arrive at. I mean, he's a mediator of creation, just like redemption. So what I'm arguing for, and I think all of us would, is not to push nature aside. That's, that would be a huge mistake, in fact, mm -hmm. a sinful mistake. It's to always recognize that God's revelation, if I may use the term, is multivalent. That is, they're all working together. God's, that is, the creation is revelation, and the Bible is revelation, and Jesus Christ is revelation. We're constantly looking at all of these together to get a proper understanding and interpretation of reality. So that's kind of my very, very long answer to your very, very short and good question. So it's... Uh, Much. Yeah. It, Go ahead, Ryan. I was just going to say to uh, maybe just a quick, a quick follow-up. I didn't, I didn't want, to cut, want to cut you off there, Jeff, but um, is it... Uh, would, would is it fair to say that uh, one of the errors that we're seeing in uh, in sort of in contemporary uh, applications of natural law theory is that it's an overemphasis on on the place of nature? No, I wouldn't quite say that. I mean, you look at Dewey Beard; he has a very high view of of nature. But here's what I think is happening, and I want to give credit to some of these folks because they often have good intentions. And Jeff, I'm thinking maybe talk more capably about this. We look at what's going on today, particularly in the area of sexual ethics, mm. and we see the, the reconstruction of reality, the intellectual reconstruction of reality, same-sex marriage, transgenderism, and so on. And these folks are saying, wait, we need to get in touch with reality. And they're not wrong about that. We certainly do. What they're really arguing against is they're making, I'm kind of getting in the weeds here, but they're really opposing a constructivist epistemology. That is, in postmodernism, and from Kant, that the human mind constructs reality. And they are right to oppose that. But that's not what presuppositionalism argues for, or Dewey Verit or Van Til or anybody else. We do have, I think it was Van Til, always using this antithetical language. What did he say? Uh, with unbelievers, uh, metaphysically or ontologically, we have everything in common, and epistemologically, we have nothing in common. Well, that's not quite true, but the point he was getting at is, yeah, we have a shared reality here. Right. Yes, the cosmology is the same for everybody. Yes, man and woman made the image of God. Yes, that's the same for everyone. That's not the problem. The problem is unbelievers tend to skew that. When they encounter reality, they don't encounter it in a neutral way. And that's where presuppositionalism, Kuiper, Van Til, and others made such a valuable uh, contribution. So I understand why some of these folks are holding this view. We really have to get in touch with reality. All these people constructing their own reality in their minds, they're correct on that point. But the problem is we don't actually encounter reality in a neutral way. That's, I think, what's going on. Gotcha. No, that makes a lot of sense.
Sorry, Jeff. Um, I'd love to have you jump in on that. Yeah, I, I would comment a couple things. Andrew's thinking his last point is precisely right. There is always an assumed worldview. There is no neutrality. Uh, there is no brute objectivity. Mm -hmm. And because there's an assumed worldview, there's also an assumed cosmology. And so we need to understand that that's being operational. We're not just coming to some neutral ground and saying, what do you think kind of an issue? Uh, I would also say that there's a long tradition. Cicero, for example, was very capable in articulating this natural law position. Uh, Sophocles in his uh, play in particular in, in Antigone. Mm -hmm. You know, these things echo here. The question, though, is why? Are they just pulling things out, or is it because they're made in the image of likeness of God and live That's in right. his world, and thus are beginning to broadcast these things which are true? So you have people without resort uh, to these things, and yet, uh, with like special revelation pre-Christ, and yet they begin to say things that, that are frankly compatible and consistent with the Christian worldview. They're just incomplete. So you move ahead to this natural law issue, and let's look at it a little bit historically. There was, in the English common law in particular, and in the early American jurisprudence, an appreciation and acknowledgement of a law above the law, called the natural law, sometimes called a transcendent kind of piece, and that was just operable. It was the context in which uh, people were doing jurisprudence, and it gave uh, ballast to the common law and so on and so forth. There was a concerted effort by people like Louis Brandeis, Oliver Wendell Holmes, mm. and William James and other areas to absolutely cut this off. Holmes wrote on the natural law with the sole uh, goal of getting rid of that sort of transcendence. Law becomes instrumental. Enter John Dewey, who picks this right. up. Yeah, law becomes functional, all procedural, so on and so forth. So it, there was this barren wasteland, and the United States Supreme Court itself got rid of it about 1938. Well, um, so what, what does that leave us with? Does that deny there's a law above the law? Does it deny there's a transcendent lawgiver? Well, of course not, but we're ignoring that. So what happens is, and what I think <clears throat> needed to happen, and it is happening, and part of the revival you're seeing of this tradition, number one, it's what Andrew said, all these people that say it's all about social construction – no. But the other side of it is there's no way to root any sort of permanent justice as they did at Nuremberg war trials. I mean, everything right. the Nazis did was, of course, lawful, unless there's a law above the law. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, you go back, and what does Jesus say in court? He tells Pontius Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it had been granted to you from above. So, you have an ability to recapture the narrative, to restart and reject this Holmesian view by talking about a law above the law. But we ought to be able to do it just to, just to grab some sort of transcendence. We've got to shift the narrative that says, you know what, we do need to root things. There does need to be a transcendent standard. Or as C.S. Lewis has said, you, the measuring stick can't measure itself. There has to be a standard that's outside of it. That's a good first step. But then I, what I'm seeing, and I think this is another good step, is a tactic of talking about what's that which is transcendent, a natural law tradition. Uh, we're not going to fill that in yet. We're not going to be complete yet, but it's a tactic. But it's a tactic in particular 
dealing with a theological understanding of the human person. Anthropology. What is man? In other words, instead of asking what is man uh, do, we ask what is man for, so that the design begins to dictate. Well, part of that then goes back to this teleological understanding, which is part of the natural law component. But ultimately, where does it go back? Ultimately, it goes back exactly where the Scripture witnesses things, and that is creation. As I said, there's always a cosmology there. Well, we know that biblical creation is that which, in fact, is real reality. In fact, reflects that which is really real. And I'm, I'm, I've been going through a different kind of Bible reading this year, and it's fascinating to me. I am seeing all over the place when the prophets say some things, no matter what their aim is, whether it's ethical or exhortational or warning, when Paul makes arguments, whether it's Colossians or Acts 17 or Romans 1 and 2, the, the um, weight put upon that there is a true God who is knowable and is the creator. Yeah. They don't start in Genesis 3 with redemption. They start with creation. As Andrew said, Christ is the meteor of creation. Colossians is all about that. Mm-hmm. So this notion of creation, it just falls off the lips of the prophets, falls off the lips of the apostles, and so forth. And I think there's a robust component uh, that we've got to recapture. All the natural law stuff has to be bought in some place. And the work of the law is written on our hearts. Great. We echo that. Why? Because we are created in the image and likeness of God. And so I think that what we're seeing now, though, and maybe this skips ahead, is people who are invoking this natural law tradition are doing so in an untethered way by relying upon wisdom. Well, we're just going to reason our way. We're going to be uh, discursive. We're going to deduct uh, ethical norms, da-da-da-da-da-da. And every case, I've not seen one person yet, without cheating, uh, come to, for example, biblical sexual ethics. They always go in the opposite direction because they are, in fact, shunning or jettisoning creational norms, including the creational normativity, what it means to be human and what it means to be sexual. Yeah, good. By the way, Jeff, I agree entirely. I think you look at uh, Paul himself at Athens, and Jeff, you're talking about being strategically invoking natural law. In, or natural, in many ways, that's exactly what Paul did. You know, here's the salt yeah. of the unknown God. And uh, he doesn't start by referring to Jesus Christ, but he ends by that. He says, oh, this unknowable yep. God and so on. And, oh, by the way, Paul says, I know that guy. <laughs> I know that guy. Yep. So there at the end, he brings in the resurrection. So the point is, is this is what I was kind of saying with all of this was that Van Til said it's sort of like the train at Disneyland, the one that goes, you, you get on. Anywhere you want to get on the train, it eventually ends up at the same place. So you want to get on a natural law, it's going to lead us back to the lawgiver. It's going to lead us back to yep. creation, which will lead us to Jesus Christ. So strategically, I think that's that's actually quite why. And we have biblical examples of that, clearly. Yes. Yes, everything, everything that uh, that you're saying, it's uh, it's encouraging, it's enlightening. Um, I'm, re- I'm reminded uh, very strongly of uh, Dr. Bonson's uh, well-known line that God is the precondition of intelligibility. That's right. Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. sorry. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Jeff was talking about a transcendent standard in law, and I, I think it's very clear. This is why all of this sort of um, uh, pragmatic and instrumental 
uh, an existential uh, legal philosophy fails, it eventually is all self-defeating. I mean, eventually, yes. Jeff was talking about Nuremberg. Mm-hmm. They were all of the people who say, well, it's all instrumental and it's all socially constructed. Well, of course, they probably would not support the idea that it would be okay for a government and no one could oppose a government that enacted legislation which said it was all right to go out and kill black people. They would be horrified at that. But on their own legal uh, reasoning, they, they could not be if they don't hold to a transcendent standard. So, uh, And it's very easy to prove all of that. So it's kind of a, uh, we might call it a sort of a cafeteria legal philosophy. It's just what's convenient for us in our situation. But those of us that hold to transcendent standards like Jeff was talking about have to, have to constantly point out that you can't live that way, and nobody actually does. That's right. It becomes simply a fig leaf for power. That's right. Once you jettison transcendence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And one one thing that uh, I was speaking with Joe just a minute ago, and he wishes he could be here, but um, tell him we're having too much fun without him. He should okay. stay away. Yeah. yeah. I'll get some pictures with some, uh, you know, a couple glasses of wine. Yeah, he's gonna be. You're gonna be sorry you missed out, Joe. Uh, but uh, what, one thing that uh, that he mentioned, and Jeff, you took you took it uh, took us all the way back to uh, to the creation in Genesis one. Uh, but uh, one, one yeah, one thing that he mentioned is that we have never had just creation. Like from the time that God walked in the garden with Adam, create the 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 word of creation was has uh, has never. Has never had to go solo. It's always it's always been accompanied by sort of special or verbal revelation. Yeah, it's uh, always been uh, accompanied by a creator first. Yeah. For sure, yeah. you cannot just have a blank creation. There's a creator who's uh, independent and autonomous therefrom and governs it via the word. That is to say, by a law, by a spoken edict, and so on and so forth. That's right. Yeah, I mean, Van Til, that was one of his great points about creation, is creation never appears without an interpretation, a divine interpretation. I mean, you see it in the garden, you see it elsewhere. I mean, so, I mean, the interpretation of creation always accompanies creation. That's the way it was from the very beginning, and that's why this propositional word of God is there. I mean, think about it. God didn't create Adam and Eve and then sort of step back and just assume they could just look around and figure out exactly what God was, what he was doing, what he was like, what they should do. No, he puts them in this ideal situation, and then says, oh, here's what I want you to do, and here's who I am, and here's who you are. Mm-hmm. And that's the way it should be. If that was the case even before the fall, imagine how much more necessary it is after the fall. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the, the, some people have said that, you know, the law, man has a fourfold state, and law plays a role in all four stages, which is to say that special revelation plays a role in all four stages. It's inseparable and it's inescapable from what it means to be human in the world God made. Hmm. Yeah, I think another thing to point out, and Jeff might want to talk about this, there is this notion, well, the Bible can be misinterpreted, and so we're going to rely only on nature apart from the Bible or Jesus Christ because it's, you know, so clear. But even in the 20th century, we have examples of people who invoked nature in very perverse ways. I mean, think only of Adolf Hitler and the National Socialists. Mm-hmm. Who relied right. on nature to hold the view that you know that the Aryan race is inherently uh, superior to um, other races? Well, of course that's a false view. That's a false interpretation of nature. But then we should ask ourselves: How would we prove that it's a false interpretation of nature? Well, we'd need to rely on special revelation to do that. And uh, of course, that's 
what the, neither Hitler nor anybody else associated with him would want to do. That's right. Think of all the crazy theories like physiognomy. Right. I'm going exactly. to, you know, see how intelligent you are by the shape of your ears and, and cranium. Right. right. Seriously? Yeah. <laughs> and yet all the scientists signed off on it. You know, I mean, eugenics, of course, would be the other key example from last century. And you allude to that with Hitler and his delusion. Uh, we see this all the time, uh, just that, uh, the, the consensus shifts. And, you know, Thomas Kuhn in his masterful book in the 60s, right? The structure of scientific revolution. Uh, shows that there are no brute facts. And this guy wasn't a believer, to my knowledge, but he understood how paradigms work and plausibility right. narratives work early on. So, And here's where I want to give some credit to, though I disagree somewhat with some of my very gifted Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, what they see to their credit, and uh, Jeff often works closely with them, and I do sometimes, to their credit, they recognize that this sort of constructivist view that today everything is socially and intellectually uh, constructed, they say, no, we have to go back to reality, the way things are. They're not wrong to assert that. They're Mm -hmm. absolutely correct to assert that. I simply want to add that the reason we're able to make that assertion about reality is because of the creator God himself, who reveals himself not just in creation, but also in the Bible and in Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, I'm. Uh, I've got. Uh, I've got small kids. We're doing a uh, a children's catechism with them, and uh, <clears throat> based on the Westminster Catechism. But one of the uh, one of the question answers is, where do you learn how to love and obey God? And the answer is in the Bible alone. Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. There's a. Uh... It's interesting that, I mean, when you think about this, and this is where we must talk about the post-lapsarian or post-fall situation. Mm-hmm. So Paul gives a very robust view, very robust view of nature or creation in Romans chapter 1. But interestingly enough, he doesn't suggest that that leads to everybody, oh, well, yes, here's this true God, and we need to bow to him. All to the contrary, the Gentiles, and then, of course, he deals with the Jews later, they actually, because of their, the sinfulness of a human heart, their twisted heart, they twist nature itself and begin to worship something in creation. So the variable here is not creation. The variable is in the human heart. That's the problem. Creation is a revelation. Creation is a revelation. It's accurate. It does reveal God accurately. But because humans are so sinful, they're always inclined, all sinful human beings, certainly without the grace of God, are inclined to twist that natural revelation. And that's basically in Romans 1, that's Paul's description of the ancient world. That is his description. Mm -hmm of their sinfulness. They have worshipped and served the creation rather than the creator. And that's right. where a view of of uh, looking at nature without any corresponding understanding of the grace of God leads. I get like I I keep hearing the phrase natural law bandied about and sometimes I'll hear a definition and I think, yeah, I can get on board with that and sometimes I'll think that's that's no good. I we can't go there. Um but what's um What's a Christian response to, I guess, talk of natural law and uh, maybe a, a, an acceptable, reformed definition of natural law? Well, I'll, I mean, I'll jump in first, Jeff. Jeff will correct my errors okay. here after I <laughs> talk. That's, um, always, so, that's um, why I always I think, call Jeff. I, I think you've kind of implied something that is very important, and that is, though there is a broad 
uh, broadly agreeable definition of natural law. Actually, there are different shades of meaning. You talk to ten different, yeah. uh, let's say five, different, five Roman Catholic theologians, five Protestants, and say, well, what's natural law? You might get six different shades of meaning. So it's important to understand exactly what it is. Uh, from a Reformed understanding, I think we need to stress two things, and particularly in this age when we are just sort of overwhelmed with the, well, the well, probably the final result, getting close to the final results of this Kantian epistemology, constructing reality out of our own mind. We must stress on the one hand strongly the objective reality of the cosmology, of creation, of God as the world is made, of these creational norms that Jeff was talking about. This is objective. It is shared by everyone. We don't get to make up what a male is or a female or a human or what the cultural mandate is or if there isn't or how do we. You don't get to make all that stuff up. That is a given. We must stress that. I might add quickly, why must we stress that? Because the Bible says so. We didn't derive that from just looking at creation. The Bible itself told us how to look at creation. Which leads to the second point, in my view, we must recognize the the utter interrelatedness of every component of divine revelation. We can't grab one of them and pull it away. Now, I've just kind of said some negative things about Roman Catholics, so I want to add here a little something negative about evangelicals to be very fair about this. Think about evangelical begins with evangel, uh, the euangelion, essentially the gospel. Mm -hmm. Evangelicals have stressed, unlike Roman Catholics, who strongly stress creation and nature and tend to be very good on that point, the traditional ones, the evangelicals have stressed the evangel, the gospel, Christ on the cross, the resurrection. All of that is good, but evangelicals have, on the whole, tended to be sort of very inept and very weak on the issue of creation. And in my view, that's one of the reasons so many of them are collapsing right now over the issue of same-sex marriage hmm. and so on. Yes. So whether Roman Catholics I, I, might – go ahead, Jeff. I jump right in. No, I was gonna, I'm just amening. I, I totally agree with Andrew's assessment of that in two respects. One is natural law is not a monolithic term. Yeah. And I think the first Christian response is, what do you mean by that? Yeah. Are you saying yeah. that we have a common human nature that's by design? And therefore, there are normative constructs with respect to that? Or are you simply saying that I can reason my way to God? Those are very different kinds of things that oftentimes pass as natural law. And I think it's exactly right. We can't back up past Genesis 1. And consequently, people are having great difficulty in evangelicalism. They're saying, quote, it's not a gospel issue, right? And so the trouble is that when Jesus talked, particularly about uh, two religious leaders about um, sexuality and the ethics within marriage, including divorcement. Mm -hmm. He says it was not so from the beginning, echoing the very language that Moses uses in Genesis. It's putting a stamp and imprimatur, and frankly, uh, given his uh, ethical discourse up to that point, that the kingdom is here, and this is one of the applications of that kingdom— is the robust application in the power of the spirit of the creational norms. Right. Well, evangelicals, if they just dismiss or think optional uh, create, you know, creation and don't understand the normativity of what's gone on there, yeah, they're going to punt on these issues of sexuality. They're going to punt on the issues relative to sexuality, like abortion. Mm-hmm. They're going to try to find another standard. You're seeing that now creeping into evangelicalism, identity politics, uh, what is known as cultural Marxism. These are all symptoms of a gap 
that creation, in fact, provides foundation against and for. Uh, Jeff, uh, just so so true. I mean, it sounds so counterintuitive to evangelicals today, but I don't think people understand that if you get creation wrong, eventually you can't get the gospel right. Because Correct. the gospel is grounded in a particular view of creation. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's so easy to it's easy to prove that. Let's just quickly take the issue of transhumanism. Well, the gospel was actually designed for humans created in the image of God. It's not designed for machines. Now, that's mm-hmm. just one minor point, but you take it all the way through and you recognize that the gospel presupposes, I think, was it David Wells has said, it's beautifully put, the gospel presupposes a worldview, a creational worldview. The gospel wasn't yeah. meant for a world in which different from the created world that we live in, but these creational norms. So you sort of shove aside the creational norms and you say, well, we're going to get at the gospel. Well, the gospel only makes sense within these creational norms. That's right. It's a context. Sure it is. Yeah. Fall from what? Sin from what? That's Redemption right. yeah. to what? Death, death from what? Life unto what? <laughs> yeah. yeah, That's right. And, uh, and by the way, how do you pray? We want to talk about let's, let's get people converted so they can have a relationship with who? God, our Father. Oh, that's right. There's normativity that's right. to that term. Yeah. We are course, sons yep. and daughters. Oh. <laughs> and, and Ephesians 5, what's the great picture of Christ and the church? The bride and the groom, not two males or two females. Correct. Um, and uh, then, of course, we're, we're all children of God in the church, and the Bible speaks of the heavenly Jerusalem as mother of us all. So you can't overturn the creational family and still get to the gospel. You just can't do That's that. Right. And, and as we're called to be fruitful and multiply, um, that implies inheritance. Oh, something right. else that we're... We have all that stems out of the created norms. That's right. I think uh, so. This is why, and I think um, Ryan. Some people when they look at EICC and they look at um, ADS, CCL, other organizations, and they think, oh, they'll scratch their head and say, well, I guess some of that works okay, but that's not the real gospel work. You know, that's kind of the tangential work. No, we're uh, we're under- so uh, we're so unwoke. Yeah. <laughs> well, right. I think we need to be woken in a different way. Woken to what the Bible actually. Yeah. Uh, Awaken to what the Bible actually teaches. But the fact is, what we're fighting for today, we're fighting, in fighting for creational norms and creation and reality, we really are fighting for the biblical gospel. That's what we're really fighting for. Now, the people, Joe and I have talked about this a number of times. We think about it. My uh, father, uh, quite old now, and Joe's father, uh, gospel ministers, they ministered in a time when many of these things could have been largely taken for granted. Yeah. So they were talking a lot about creational norms, not because they didn't believe them, but because this was at least there was what Schaefer said, a broad Christian consensus. Yeah, a lot of sin, a lot of evil, but at least. But see, that's what's being eroded today, and therefore we have to go back and say, hey, we haven't recognized these things. These foundations have to be rebuilt and and, and held up in, in a very high regard, or we're going to lose the gospel, and are losing the gospel, in fact. Mm-hmm. No no question. Uh, you know, it used to be in like. 40 years ago, when I was trouncing around college campuses, it was, you know, God loves you and has a plan for your life. That has absolutely no coinage now. Or if it does, it's just a permissive thing. Well, God loves me. Why should I do anything different? Whereas the actual question that needs to come forth is God made you and has claims on your totality. That's right. 
That's right. I, you, you really get this, uh, Ryan. I know we're off a slight rabbit trail here, watching a lot of the old Billy Graham crusades yeah. and uh, powerful yeah. gospel mm. preaching. He's always preaching against sin. You all, you're a sinner. Yes. You know you're a sinner. And you know what? The 90 to 95% of the people there, even the vast majority that were unconverted, yeah, say, yeah. you know what? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a drunkard, or I commit sexual immorality, and yeah, I've broken God's law. But today to say that, people say, well, I'm not sure about that. I mean, yeah. who, you, know, mm-hmm. you don't get to decide that. I get to decide that. And sin's probably just... I mean, racism is a sin, maybe, and homophobia is a sin. But sure, that's not really and like sin. being rich is a sin. That's exactly all of those things. So we really have to, and this is why people, and some of the stuff we'll talk about next week, God willing, this argument's against those of us who are strongly stressing Christian worldview. I don't think they understand. You don't, may not want to call it worldview, but we're really stressing is a creational and a biblical understanding of the world. And if you don't have that, everything else doesn't make sense. So don't attack Christian worldview or biblical worldview or, or creational norms. Don't attack those and, and appeal only to sort of the shared wisdom we have and expect anything but chaos. That's the problem with the ancient world. They all thought that we could have this sort of shared wisdom and see where that got them. Hmm. Yep, mm-hmm. that's right. You have to assume this Christian worldview and Christian understanding in order to make sense of anything. And the the notion that we're simply going to you know, th- these attacks we're seeing, and some of the stuff that was written I was reading this morning, attacks on those of us who believe strongly in Christian worldview, and rather, let's just interpret reality in terms of wisdom and get all of the wisdom we can from unbelievers and those outside the Christian fold. Well, we have an example of that historically. That's what actually happened in the ancient world. A lot of ancient Greek philosophy, and even before that, the pre-Socratic, the sort of wisdom literature and so on, a lot of that was precisely that. Well, if that would have sufficed, why did Jesus come? I mean, why did he choose the Jews as his people and give them a written revelation? So really, it's a, it's, it's a movement toward, and it's a severe uh, verdict, but I believe it's true, it's a step toward apostasy, moving away from the clarity of God's revelation. Mm-hmm. That's right. Paul, Paul talks about if the bugle is muted. Uh, the whole point here is to develop uh, moral clarity so that it leads to moral conviction so then we can have moral courage to do work, all that we're called to do. And what happens is it's really a spirit of egalitarianism in the sense that, well, you know, okay, you do the Bible thing. We're doing the wisdom thing. We're all Christian. Well, wait a minute. This is a parsing out that ultimately disintegrates how we are designed to live by the creator God. Man is sanctified by the word. Thy word is truth. So if we don't have that, we're not going to understand how to live holy lives. We may tumble along yeah. like uh, some you know, dead, untethered, unrooted tumbleweed moving, thinking we're alive. But we won't be. So it's very important to be intentional about that. That's not to diss particular traditions. It's to understand what their proper role is and to correct them to the extent they need to be uh, corrected. And uh, it, it, is, it is a humility of mind that allows us to do that. It's the height of arrogance to say that we've got it all figured out, and whether it's, you know, Thomas or uh, one of the contemporary uh, natural law people. Sad to say, a number of them have essentially, they've even gone to the point where they're saying the Ten Commandments are not normative outside the faith community yeah. because we have, quote, natural law. Yeah, uh, that's, that's right. Just, and it- it's yeah. <laughs> flabbergasting, actually. Yeah, it's, yeah, and it's it's a denial of the sufficiency of the word. I mean, uh, yes. Uh, the, the 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 
point, it's not that everything we need to know in the world is found in the Bible. I mean, the Bible itself doesn't teach that. But the Bible does say, man shall not live, Christ himself, according to Deuteronomy, man will not live, shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. That's right. Now, if you think about that, that's essentially saying that what we need for our life, what we need for the foundation of our life, walking and pleasing to God, is found in the Word of God. As we're walking within the Word of God, we encounter other things that are helpful to us. But the notion that we should sort of step outside the Word of God and go over here and find other areas of commonality in other traditions and unbelieving traditions and Carl Jung and and Freud and other places and start incorporating those into Christianity, no, I think that Moses, uh, if Moses heard you say that, or Jesus or Paul, they'd look out you like you, like you eat live animals. That's not Christian. There's nothing Christian about that at all. Mm-hmm. It's the Word of mm-hmm. God that's privileged. The Word of God is a lamp right. to our feet and a light to our path. It's synchronism at that point. Again, it's it the is. egalitarian thing. It's, it's all just good. It's cafeteria uh, Christianity. Now, that's not to deny that knowledge can occur. We are called to read the natural situation, but through that's biblical right. eyes. So, for example, go to the ant. Learn from her. See her wisdom. Okay, I get that. So if someone has, for example, a cardiac problem or diabetes, boy, I want the person who understands the system as God designed it to help correct and ameliorate those uh, health conditions. The Bible doesn't tell me how much insulin to take. The Bible doesn't tell me how to craft a a blood center. But that's kind of beside the point. Mm -hmm. We can Mm -hmm. do that in a biblical optic. The point is, those who reject the biblical object can't justify them doing that. Yep, yep, absolutely. It won't tell you, Jeff, right on. It will not tell you how much insulin to take, but the idea that we would produce insulin in an artificial way to help many people has to begin with a certain presupposition about the world that is a creational presupposition. Vern Poitras makes this point very well in his book on science. He said his interesting first chapter of his book, I think it's, oh, I can't remember, science or something, all scientists believe in God. Now, his point by that is not that everybody claims to believe in God, but that you can't operate scientifically and medically and elsewhere unless you operate on theistic presuppositions. Right. And that's, that's the right. key that should be understood. That's right. And it goes particularly to the issue of regularity, the uniformity, uniformity right. principle, all that sort of stuff. How do you do experimentation anyway? <laughs> you right. can't unless you assume that tomorrow is like today. And that's it's right. operated in the past, and that's the basis for progress and knowledge, which is why, interestingly enough, science absolutely took off uh, where Christianity had produced an overt Christian culture. Yeah. So here's the thing. hope we're not going too long, Ryan, but we're on a roll, a quick roll here. Yeah. So let's no, do a let's, thought let's experiment. Keep it rolling. Yeah, keep it rolling. Let's do a thought experiment. Let us. What would the world today be like had the Bible, Hebrew Scriptures, never been written, uh, which probably means God would not have chosen a Hebrew people because he needed a propositional verbal revelation to do that. If there weren't any special revelation at all, do we get the impression the world would be a better place or as good? Well, it's flabbergastingly no. I mean, it's precisely because of, of theistic and Christian presuppositions that we have the goodness in the world that we have today. I mean, Paul gives the impression that apart from God's revelation, apart from God's revelation in Christ and revelation in the world, Men, yes, they would have God's revelation in nature, but they would walk about blindly. They would be stumbling about because of their own darkness and evil of their sinful hearts. And it takes the Jesus Christ, the revelation, the supreme revelation of God in Christ, and of course his inscripturated word to to interpret for us. We talked earlier about creational norms, and I think I mentioned the, uh, the irony here is that there are norms in creation, but 
we know what they are because we read about them in the Bible. Yeah. We didn't yeah, read yeah. about the norms of creation in creation. That's impossible. We read about the creational norms in the Bible. Now, we didn't construct them with our mind. They're there objectively. But we know them epistemically. We know them because they're revealed in the Word of God. So true. Um, as, if, as if to say, well, you know, I'm observing uh, this uh, slut hunter going down to get a drink at the lake, and a crocodile lops its head off. Oh, I guess that's natural. That's right. That's how things are supposed to exist. Well, no. But how do you know that? If it simply is what it is, if you just observe it, and that must be the norm. So we're not saying it's an is to an ought. We're saying that the oughtness comes from understanding the optic of revelation as applied to the created order. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so true. Yep, yep, so true. Man, I'm uh I'm really grateful for uh for both of you for the uh the perspective and the insight, the uh the wisdom of experience that you bring to bear on this question. And I'm really looking forward to uh to picking up this conversation, getting into uh to some of the specifics, some of the uh the applications and illustrations. All right, good sounds great, Jeff. It's wonderful Kurt. as always, Ryan. Thank you. Look forward to next talk. week. Appreciate you guys. Yeah. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, The Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please take a moment to like, share, and rate the podcast on social media and your favorite listening platform. For more resources, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca.